Many people believe that women held no power in ancient times, but in Egypt's old kingdom, this was not the case, as multiple women rose to rule this magnificent civilization as pharaoh. To learn more, and to learn more generally about the underappreciated history of Africa, check out the History of Africa podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. Now, back to the show. So how old are your guys' parents? And did you ever growing up, like regard them as like the old parents? My, so my, here's what's really fucking me up these days is that Joe Biden graduated from the University of Delaware the same year my dad was born. So my dad was born in June of 1965 and um, Joe Biden graduated University of Delaware probably like May of 1965. Um, so that's what's making me uncomfortable these days. Um, <laughs> Do you know when my mom graduated from the University of Delaware? What? The 90s. <laughs> yeah. So my parents are kind of, they're like kind of old. My mom is, um, was born in 1963. But my mom is also the third of four children. Because my mom was born in 69 and my dad's 67. And Robert's parents, I don't know exactly when they were born, but I know it's in the cluster of my parents. But my mom and dad were always regarded as like the younger parents. And it came up today because my sister's boyfriend's parents have always been regarded. My mom's like, oh, they're older because my sister's boyfriend, Stephen, is the youngest of four. Well, yeah. my mom, okay, so my mom and dad got married three days after my mom graduated from college, but they waited seven years. Like they owned a freaking subway and went backpacking in Europe before having me. Mm -hmm. So like they, they lived their life at, if you will. And then they had kids, but all my friends, like growing up, all their parents are like five to 10 years older than my parents. So my parents got married at 23. <laughs> also ridiculous. They were born in 1972. No, no shade given my mom's age out, but honestly, she's super young. We get mistaken for sisters no matter where we go, especially if we're with my grandmother. They tell her she has oh, two yeah. lovely daughters. I don't know if that's an insult to me or a compliment to my mother. Compliment. It's um, definitely a compliment to me. <laughs> my mother was invited to frat parties when she visited me in college several times no, um mother is smoking hot like my yeah. mother like yeah. is she was the marching band her. milf do you know the song stacy's mom of course i know stacy's mom um the marching band when we played it the lexi's guys would sing mom lexi's mom has got it going on <laughs> this modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women Hello and welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. With me, sort of, as always, is Lexi. Lexi, what are you thankful for? I am thankful for you guys. That's gross. I'm also joined-ish by Haley. Haley, are you a white meat or a dark meat kind of gal? I really like, I guess, like the, like a turkey leg. That's dark meat. That's my jam. I'm also not necessarily a turkey person. And I'm Alana, and I'm team captain of the Cranberry Sauce Defense Squad. <laughs> I don't think there's a good word for the people who were in the Americas before white people came to the Americas. There is I also think that word. it's not us as non 
those people. That's the thing. And that was the conversation that we had. And I hate that I said those people because it shouldn't be (laughs) those people. But like for my grad school, we have a whole section of like repatriation, NAGPRA, all that lovely good stuff in our law class. And with our history and theory class, there's always like this kind of want to call it a symposium. We asked the question, and I think it was my professor who posed this because she was like, I have to talk about it and I'm a Jewish white woman. Mm-hmm. So like, I know people like have their preference on Jewish people versus Jews. And I, I want to be able to teach the correct thing. And everyone in the room said native peoples just because so many different tribes or groups don't consider themselves American. So mm-hmm. that's what I use. And I like that the like phrase, and I'm probably, someone else probably saying this, but I'm going to make it up for myself right now. Just go with what you know until you're proven wrong. Because mm-hmm. like, that's what I know. And like for now. But and- that's the thing that we were talking about, not on the podcast, elsewhere about how like, I've never heard an actual Latinx person use the phrase Latinx. Yeah. I do not consider myself except for on one day at a time actually I feel like I always go with if I need to call someone something I'm gonna ask them yes what they identify as and if I don't know them well enough to have that conversation maybe I shouldn't be speaking for yeah. them in any way enough or not speaking for them but I shouldn't be like representing them but it's really complicated when we talk about history because yeah. a lot of the words we use didn't exist then like Ida B. Wells considered herself Negro and we wouldn't mm-hmm. we wouldn't probably use that word now little pronouns we don't assume exactly pronouns. so like because I I feel very weird when people like assume like my race or ethnicity and I identify that I identify with being Persian or Cuban more so than being a female if that makes sense like, because right. I've never, it's not like I'm not bi- like non-binary. Like I right. identify as female, but I've never been like, oh, I'm female. I feel like with gender, it's so, so easy to, once you decide to do it, just start using they as a default when you're not sure what someone's preference mm-hmm. is. And there's not that for race or ethnicity. There's not like a mm-hmm. default word <laughs> where oh, you can oh, say a oh, word oh, and not oh, be oh, offensive. <laughs> you know, what, what I've been told by a lot of people is like, narrow it down. Like, for example, if you're Omaha, you're Omaha. If you're Haudenosaunee, you're Haudenosaunee, because that's how they like refer to themselves. And I've heard this too. Like, I'm going to say this. I was on TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, cultural TikTok is very fun. Like, I landed myself on what was called by this group of TikTok this flavor of TikTok, native and indigenous TikTok. Yeah, I've seen that. I will never tell someone of one group that something is not anti that group because I don't want Gentiles to tell me what is and what is not anti-Semitic. I don't want men to tell me what is and is not misogynistic. I don't want, what's my other identity? Oh, I'm queer. I don't want straight people to tell me what is and is not homophobic. Like, what's my other identity? I've got so many. I, we like marginalized in three different ways and I don't remember what the third one is. For our clinics are all specialized. 
Wednesday afternoons, for instance, we only see expectant mothers. But each one is a different problem, because each one is a different person. They feel they're special too, and always seem amazed when they discover they have something in common with the other women. But that's natural. After all, we all think of our health problems as personal problems. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of Susan LaFleche, the first Native American to receive a medical degree. And as we discussed, we're not sure exact on the terms people prefer. Um, Susan lived a long time ago and regarded herself as Native American. That's why I'm using that term. But I understand that some people may not use that term to refer to themselves, but she identified as that. So that's what I'm calling her. So yes, she was the first Native American to receive a medical degree. Susan was an Omaha woman. Her father, Iron Eyes, or Chief Joseph LaFleche, the last Omaha chief selected by traditional tribal methods. And he was the son of a Frenchman and an Omaha woman. So he was half French, half Omaha. And as a chief, he believed the only way to save his people was to mix elements of their culture with Western culture and for his people to get an education. And it was Lee's beliefs that shaped Susan's future. Her mother was one woman, or Mary LaFleche, and Susan was born on the Omaha Reservation in Nebraska in 1865. As a child, Susan witnessed a Native woman die because the local white doctor would not provide her care. This event sparked Susan's interest in becoming a medical professional with the goal of helping Native people. She attended a school on the reservation until she was 14, and then she went to the Elizabeth Institute for Young Ladies in New Jersey. Can you imagine being 14 years old and traveling from Nebraska to New Jersey on a train by yourself? That's crazy. That's Goals. absolutely crazy. I want to do it. Do it. <laughs> Be 14. Trains. I love trains. I love trains. I want to do it. So I think she must have been really brave because it just, that's, that's pretty amazing. It's a long trip for a little girl. Especially as like, first of all, like being a young woman, which is already dangerous, mm -hmm. no matter what. And she's also from this like marginalized community. Yes. That is like double dangerous quadruple dangerous because she's 14 yeah it's crazy it's crazy must have been really really brave and really wanted to go to this school I guess so she went there for three years and at 17 Susan returned home and she taught at the mission school on the Omaha reservation at the school she worked with Alice Fletcher who was a white woman who was an ethnologist who studied and recorded American Indian culture and she came to live and work with the Omaha because of her passion for archaeology. So she wanted to study living people to better understand the past, which is ethnographic archaeology. Yeah, it's a thing that a lot of archaeologists like to do. When Fletcher fell ill, Susan helped her recover. And after seeing Susan's skills and passions for medicine and healthcare, Fletcher urged Susan to travel east and pursue a degree in medicine. Susan enrolled in the Hampton Institute, which was a school in Virginia that was built after the Civil War to educate formerly enslaved people and had since become a hub for educating Black Americans and American Indians. When Susan was attending Hampton, a woman named Dr. Martha Waldron was working as a teacher and the resident physician at the school. Martha was a graduate of the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania and suggested that Susan pursue further education there. Alice Flesher, who had encouraged Susan to study medicine, assisted Susan by helping her apply for scholarships from the U.S. Office of Indian Affairs and the Women's National Indian Association. 
1889, after two years in a three-year program, Susan graduated top of her class from medical school. She spent one year doing an internship, which was similar to a modern-day medical residency program in Philadelphia, and then she returned home. At home, she became the primary care provider for about 1,200 people working at the reservation's boarding school. In 1894, she married Henry Peacoat, a Sioux man who had previously been traveling and working in Wild West shows, and they kept it all in the family, with Susan's sister, Marguerite, deciding to marry Harry's brother, Charles. So, that's, that's fun! <laughs> After getting married, Henry and Susan had two sons, and Susan opened a private practice which served both non-white and white patients in her community, when Henry fell ill, Susan personally nursed him, all while working full-time and caring for their two sons. At the age of 40, Susan became partially deaf, but kept working. In addition to being a doctor, Susan ran a children's library, worked as a Sunday school teacher, founded a quilting club, translated legal papers, and advocated for prohibition. In 1913, she opened a reservation hospital serving the Omaha and Winnebago tribes. It was the first private hospital on a reservation anywhere in the country. Today, the building is a museum dedicated to tribal history and telling the story of Susan. In 1915, at just 50 years old, Susan passed away. Susan was important to her people because as aspects of their culture were taken away from them, she was able to draw a balance between traditional medicine and the practices that she learned at Western Medical School. This worked because many of her people were still unsure about Western medicine, so by mixing their traditional healing practices with Western practices, she was able to develop a culturally specific plan of treatment. Her people grew to trust her and she began to be regarded as a modern medicine woman. She is a great example of why cultural representation is important and can impact public health. I also highly suggest watching the PBS video that I linked on the Tumblr in the further watching. It's super well made and it tells a really wonderful version of her story in a lot more detail than we're able to cover on our show. And it has really good tie-ins to modern needs of communities like Susan's and interviews some modern female doctors and their communities, which is really cool. That's it. Short one. I like I like that story. A lot. I, I like that story too. Yeah, there's not a lot about her like brain. People don't record shit. So yeah. it's mostly just her accomplishments, unfortunately. Any questions? That is not my name. Sagadamia. No. Sack in a box. No. Sagadamia. So my story is about, drum roll please, the retelling of the story of Sacagawea. And for all of you might be screaming my name right now saying, hey, I'm not pronouncing her name correctly. Hold the phone, we'll get there. I first need to do my universal apologies for pronouncing any words, even historically American English words incorrectly because we all know me, words aren't the greatest for my speech mouth. And to start us off, I'm switching over to the, like I said, the actual pronunciation, Saka Gawea. And it's Saka Gawea because in my research, there's not a soft G in the Hidasta language, which translates to bird woman. So side note, there are a bunch of different spellings, but if we're going based on the true 
like translation, sakaga is bird and it's spelled with a G. So sakagawea is sakajawea, but just like- Can from... I just say, that's way prettier than sakajawea. Yeah, because like for some sakajawea, it's like you have the G or you have S-A-K-A-K-A-W-E-A, or instead of the G, it's a J but there's no hard, or there's no soft Gs, it's only hard Gs. And as a person who has a really hard time pronouncing things from reading because the dyslexia spectrum that we know to love, it's gonna, it's gonna be balls to the walls bananas. It's like, was it the first night at the museum movie or the second night at the museum movie where she was like a character? First. It was first. the first one and then like, the museum and then she like, fell in love with Theodore Roosevelt and oh yeah and then she fell in love with Theodore Roosevelt which was so oh no I'm glad you brought that up because I cut that's that a whole can of worms but like there's that whole thing about them pronouncing it wrong but it's always Sacagawea or Sacagawea and I'm yeah. like both of you are wrong glad you brought up night of the museum because I had a whole tangent on that but then I was like roll back Haley your notes are already long to begin with you cannot expect me to not bring up night at the museum if it is even tangentially relevant I love them I hate them it's it's an incredible thing yeah Rami Malek yes he was my first love back to the notes so for our listeners out of the United States you may have heard of Sacagawea of course, with the Lewis and Clark exploring the West. However, I'm sorry, not sorry, to say that there's a solid chance that what you learned was completely incorrect. And I'm looking at you, United States education system. All of y'all education system, just the poop garbage, dumpster fire, whatever you would like to say. But let me pause for a second and explain a little bit why that that story is kind of messed up because not only do we have like a white savior complex with like Lewis and Clark we also just have a lot of sexism like sexism is painted in semen here like all over the board no menstrual blood whatsoever to like brighten up this dreary painting of shit Alana's face right now is like holy crap what is she saying it's just a little bit like Lexi what's the word that I'm looking for that is like the sentiment behind it is that not all men have semen and not all women menstruate do you know what I mean that's my thing there's, this a, is single my thing about there's a single word for that? Oh, there's like a word for something like reducing it to whatever yes and And transphobia isn't quite right exactly why i use the phrase no uh all semen in here because it's totally like heterosexual men explaining heterosexual men yeah like this is the cis white boys the cis white boys the cis white boys however it's a reason why their paintbrush is a phallic symbol that's all i'm gonna say And while I will probably not tell the most accurate story, it's going to be a hell of a lot better than what we've been given to because I'm going to be upfront. There's so much more research I could have done. And that's with all our stories. Like I think I put like three hours at least into like average for each story, sometimes more. I put in a lot more for this one. While Saka Goweo was 
a native people who symbolized peace and cooperation as she like nav- navigated Lewis and Clark with, you know, the baby strapped on her back, that like famous trope we have through the West and like the Pacific to get to the Pacific Ocean. There's a lot to more that to that story first because their crew was a crew of 40 plus people. It wasn't just like the three of them moseying along like 100% of the time, but we'll get to that. And even before then, I don't know about you guys, but I never heard of like her growing up or her as an actual native person. It was always, she's with Lewis and Clark. Like she with the white people now. It's never her life story as a whole, just this one small part. But I learned about Lewis and Clark's whole life story. And boy, howdy, am I going to talk about how she saved all their collective buttholes. So while this story is both Native people's legend and journals from the Lewis and Clark that we keep talking about, and we know that oral tradition is still history. So there are holes, obviously, with this timeline, but we know that she was born, or we think she was born in the Shoshone tribe in Idaho and was kidnapped at age 12, possibly age 10. What I didn't know though, is that when she was kidnapped, I knew she was kidnapped, but this is bad. I didn't actually know who kidnapped her. And it was a neighboring tribe. I believe it was the Hadasta tribe. It was noted as a rival tribe. And from there, she was sold into slavery and forced to marry Toussaint Charbonneau, Charbonneau, C-H-A-R-B-O-N-N-E-A-U. We'll go with that. A French-Canadian fur trapper who had other, quote, Shoshon wives. So this wasn't, this wasn't great. Like, it wasn't great to begin with, but we're just, like, still riding that train of, yes, you're not going to tell a bunch of elementary school kids this story, but let's not paint the picture of happy childhood. And in 1804, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark recruited no other than, I'm going to call him TC, TC, because I can't pronounce either of his names and I'm going to keep fumbling on it, to be their like wilderness guide. The geography of it was that the country almost doubled in size, but the history of it was Louisiana Purchase was acquired by France. Acquired from France. Yes. They were already on their expedition by the time they met up with TC and Sacagawea. Sacagawea was 16 and pregnant at the time, accompanied the men, and she was the only female of this shit show of a shindig. And by shit show of a shindig, this was like 40-something other men with Lewis and Clark. Like, they had a whole rodeo. And we see this a lot, that if people went on expedition, it wasn't just that group of people, but they brought, like, their cooks, their wives, their children, people to, like, bring their food, i.e., like, livestock, because we didn't have fridges and such. So that, like, was not surprising to me. What was surprising was, like, that's a valuable teaching point was just, like, to teach kids, how did people move from place to place? And this is at the point where Clark notes that she was the most valuable member of their group because although TC was like hired to give them like geography, he was like noted as French Canadian and a fur trapper, 
but noted as like he was not good at like navigating compared to Sacagawea and like the other native peoples in the area like it was obvious and like even Lewis and Clark were like "Ooh, she she better which she was and she spoke both Shoshone and Hidasta and so she was like the interpreter for the white men like literally and that's the part like they got correct and they being like the education system that point was correct she was interpreter and shout out to the Brooklyn Museum for literally giving me the quote interpreter for the group of white men even the Brooklyn Museum's not playing around and obviously these white men weren't liked amongst other native people's tribes but when they saw a woman who wasn't considered to be a warrior and that's like the key point it wasn't just that they had a native person with them it was that she had a child with her she spoke their language it like didn't give off any alarm bells because also like there's that misconception that all native peoples were friendly to each other there are different like rivalries amongst tribes that was just pure luck for them that that worked out and so of course Lewis and Clark wanted to make their main man TC because his fur trapping knowledge and like how he knew the geography and like we said that was sure he did some stuff but Sakawea basically said hold my beer and she clearly knew where she was supposed to go she clearly knew also just like the weather patterns where to find food and multiple occasions when they were in like the Yellowstone area and it was really cold at night we're in the parts where it's just snowing and dark for many 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 parts of the winter and she would like be able to not only like find but like somewhat grow or just like keep food in a way that like they would be able to say sustain themselves in eating so it was like a group effort by everyone it wasn't just like lewis and clark being like we got this we we we, we're gonna do it we're gonna get to the pacific ocean in the middle of the winter fast forward a bit and there are a bunch of other stories of her being a complete badass like diving into water when their canoe tips over and saving like all the important stuff, food, even like Lewis and Clark's journals. But we have to move forward, sadly, to the end of her expedition and just give her a well-rounded story. Like I said, I wanted to hear this as a kid. And while the expedition ended in 1806, she kind of still knew Lewis and Clark. And let me do a side note here. She did not receive payment for this expedition because like yeah that sounds like the right thing to do uh I say with all my sarcastic cells in my body there are a lot of them by the way so we're all doing a chorus of sarcastic singing and three years later in 1809 another side note this is where at least my history kind of definitely has different stories there's no concrete this is what happened there wasn't Snapchat recording everything, I guess. Clark invited Sakagawea and her family to live in St. Louis. And he also later adopted her son, Jean Baptiste, and he called him Pompey and a baby girl, Lisette. And it's noted that she separated from TC, who was abusive. But after this point in our timeline, we called dates and history, we know very little. And again, with this debated topic, her death is in that category. So records from Fort Manuel 
where she like she lived there at a time. She supposedly died in December 1812 from typhus. And going off what Native people's oral histories, because again, oral histories are histories. Um, she lived on the Shoshone lands in Wyoming until 1884. And regardless, Sacagawea clearly became somewhat of a legend with her own story being told by writers, filmmakers, historians, in a time where women, especially Native and indigenous women, were absolutely thought of as weak, not helpful, and sometimes even dangerous. So you might be asking yourself, Haley, where do I find other resources? Obviously, check out our show notes. They are quite lovely. And honestly, children's books, the most like recent ones, were kind of on point. They're all about like, especially now in 2020, and in specifically in the show notes, look at the Brooklyn Museum and the National Women's History Museum. And that is my story. Hey, National Women's History Museum, do you want to give me an internship? Manifestation. Zitkala Sa was born February 22nd, 1876. That makes her a Pisces. She is technically an Aquarius Pisces cusp. And Zitkala Sa means red bird in the Sioux language. Um, she was born on the Yankton Indian Reservation in South Dakota. Uh, her mother was Sioux and her father was white. Her father abandoned the family. And in, initially when I see white father, indigenous mother, that is alarm bells in my head, but she did have an older brother. So less alarm bells, quieter alarm bells. And just as an FYI, a blanket statement, we had the discussion that we're not really sure if we should say native or indigenous. So I kind of use both, mixing it up. If you know someone who has an opinion, let us know and we'll use that going forward. I think that's kind of a good general statement for this podcast is correct us if we're wrong and we'll change our ways. Because that's how you correct us with kindness. Oh yeah, correct us with kindness. Be nice. I have feelings. <laughs> we can't handle it. Don't be mean to me. Uh, at the age of eight, so 1884, she left the reservation when Quaker missionaries came to recruit for their massive air quotes school, and it was only a school if by school you mean um, forced assimilation centers. But we'll get to that a little bit later. It was literally called the Whites Indiana Manual Labor Institute. And the U.S. is still racist. I'm not saying that it's not racist, but at least we're not racist enough to let something with a name like that slide. I feel like baby steps, little progress. Zitkala Sa's mother didn't want her to go because her brother had come back from a school and she didn't like it. But Zitkala Sa begged and begged because for kids who had never left the reservation, it seemed like a magical place and it sounded so cool. Her mother did eventually acquiesce because there were no schools on the reservation and she really wanted Zidkala to have an education. But she later wrote that the second she got on the train to Indiana, she regretted fighting so hard for it. She was forced to cut her hair and pray like a Quaker, which she hated. Pray like a Christian is like, that's intergenerational trauma in my heart. She actually hid from the people who were working at the school and they had to tie her to a kitchen chair and cut her hair. I don't know if it was actually a kitchen chair. I just wanted to make a Leonard Cohen reference. Hey, Alana, are you Jewish? 
Yes. But she really did enjoy learning how to read and write and to play the piano and the violin. Uh, she was given the name Gertrude Simmons, which is a footnote that will only come up at the very end of the story. <laughs> In 1887, she returned to her mother's home, but she felt like she didn't belong there. And this was a common theme among children who had been sent to these massive air quotes schools because they felt like they didn't really belong to their indigenous culture, but they also weren't really like the white Americans. In 1895, she enrolled at Earlham College for a teacher training program and then transferred to the New England Conservatory to continue studying violin. In 1900, she became a music teacher at the Carlisle Indian School but left because it reminded her of her traumatic experiences at a similar school. She basically came to the realization that she was just like, oh shit, they are designed to take our culture from us. She's like, I, I couldn't be a part of that anymore. In 1901, she published Old Indian Legends, which was a compilation of all of her previous writings and culminated in a lifelong project of translating Sioux traditions into English because this is a quote from her from the beginning of the, the book. America in the last few centuries has acquired a second tongue, which is so shady. And I love it. A acquired a second tongue. It's just like, mm. So also in 1901, she went back to South Dakota and took a job at the United States Bureau of Indian Affairs, which I will refer to going forward as the BIA where she met Captain Raymond Bonin, who was also a Sioux, but I couldn't find what his like Sioux name was since he was also full Sioux, but probably not Raymond, but then they did have a son and named him Raymond, so I'm not sure. I don't know. Um, they were transferred to Utah where Zidkala saw taught again, but not at a white school, at a reservation school where the children lived at home and she found that like to be a balance. In 1910, she met William Hansen, who was a music professor at Brigham Young University. And in 1913, they completed the Sundance Opera, which was about a Sioux ritual that the federal government had banned, which I think is what a workaround, what a way to beat the system. She viewed music as a way to bridge the cultures that she was a part of, and it did. And that culminated in the Sundance Opera. She joined the Society of American Indians, which is a group that lobbied for citizenship for indigenous people and cultural preservation because nuance, which is a thing that I am feeling recently, just nuance, tattoo it on my forehead, shout it from the rooftops, nuance. She became the secretary of the Society of American Indians and started interacting directly with the BIA where her husband worked. She was very critical and vocal of their policies because they wanted her to pray like a Christian, which mm, ah, uh, ah, mm. the intergenerational trauma, she just, she do be jumping out. And her husband was fired. Was it because of her criticism of the BIA? Maybe. No, who's to say? I don't, I can't say, but maybe. But they moved to Washington, D.C where she started giving lectures about cultural identity and continued her work with the Society of American Indians. She even was briefly the editor of American Indian Magazine. In 1924, she became active in the General Federation of Women's Club, which was like a women's rights group, but make it intentionally diverse. It was grassroots campaigns to support women of all backgrounds, and we simply have no choice but to stand. Intersectional feminism. 
intersectional feminism we we love it we love to see it we love to see intersectional feminism like in the 20th century before it was cool if you will she started a universal indigenous movement that led to the passage of the 1924 indian citizenship act which as the name implies gave indigenous people citizenship but not necessarily the right to vote because that was still up to the states in 1926, she co-founded with her husband the National Council of American Indians to continue lobbying for the rights of Indigenous people. She died January 26th, 1938 at the age of not quite 62 and is buried in Arlington Cemetery with her husband. Her gravestone reads Gertrude Simmons and then Zitkala Saw, which makes me feel a little bit weird, but at least it's on there. I don't know if she like had a choice what went on there, but I, I think it's cool that it's on there. And she was the first Indigenous woman to write her own autobiography without the help of an editor or a translator because she was just good at English. She was also very anti-use of peyote, which is really interesting because she was like, alcoholism on the reservations is a huge problem. And so we need to like do something about our ingesting of substances. It's like all of these things that are about nuance, which is something that I'm, again, I'm feeling so, so much about nuance. It's something that I've been working on in therapy for like three years. That's not true, for two years. That I'm just like, we can we can have two things that coexist, that like it, it would be in everybody's best interest to be an American citizen. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all of these native people have to abandon their rituals and their culture. It's that whole melting pot thing, which is such a like, when you think about it, kind of a weird image, put people in a melting pot. Anyway. That's a fun note to end on. That's all I have to say. Um, I just want to add that uh, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I worked on a project at the Smithsonian Library called Women in America Extra and Ordinary. I'm the one who suggested this lady because I thought Alana would like learning about this lady. And I just wanted to kind of talk about a little bit why I put her in the project. Um, the thing that I love about her is... The portrait gallery has pictures of her that were taken um, when she was quite young, I believe in her 20s. And they're beautiful because they're so, like, real. Like I think my favorite one is, now that I've mentioned it, Lexi, you probably have to use it in the graphic, but it's her having grown her hair back out yes. with her violin. Yes. yes. And She's it's just, like, how it's, like, once you know the background of that, it's, like, this is how she combined these two cultures by like really enjoying playing the violin and also having her long traditional hair. She's yeah. just so like, it's like she could be your friend. Like yeah. she's just a real person. And she's so like, I don't know. Oh, they're good pictures. If you haven't seen pictures. them, go they're look at her pictures. Go they're to the show notes, pictures. look at the pictures. They're great pictures. And okay, I think, okay, this is the root of it. I think when you see pictures of native peoples from that time, so many times it's like, they're wearing like outfits that aren't even correct for their culture and they were forced to pose in like ridiculous like costumized versions of their own culture um like i've seen ones where people who weren't plains indians were put in plains indians attire for pictures but like she's just hanging out and i really like that <laughs> just love her <laughs> so much she's so cool and her name means red bird and her name means red bird and lexi loves birds. Oh my, she loves birds. <laughs>
You can find this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode will be on ladyhistorypod.tumblr.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or tell your friends. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Lexi B. Draws. Our theme music is by me, GarageBand, and Amelia Earhart. Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History. Next week on Lady History, we're balling with some boss bitches. Get your bags of money ready, because we're making it rain. Okay. All right. I'm going to crawl out of my closet. Good night. Good night. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Bye-bye.